0: This podcast was produced from a webinar. For a more interactive experience with visuals, visit myamericannurse.com forward slash webinars. Our speaker, Dr. Wendy Wright, is an award-winning nurse practitioner and owner of a successful clinic in New Hampshire. She'll be sharing evidence related to how sugar added to food contributes to obesity and diabetes and how nurses can help patients reduce their sugar intake. Now let's get started. Thank you uh, for joining us Dr. Wright. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much Julie and thank you all because I know this is such a busy time and I really do appreciate you taking the opportunity to join me today. So on behalf of myself and uh, Splenda Healthcare, I want to welcome you all to safety and science of low and no calorie sweeteners. For purposes of disclosure, it is important to note that I am being paid an honoraria for my work on this project, including this presentation from Heartland Food Products Group, the maker of Splenda brand products. Here's what we are going to accomplish in the next 45 minutes. We are going to detail the evidence, which shows how added sugars in our diet are contributing to obesity and diabetes. We're going to define and identify the characteristics of the various low and no calorie sweeteners that are currently available. We will interpret language and integrate new and existing scientific literature on the safety and efficacy of low and no calorie sweeteners in our decision-making process. And last, I hope to provide you information so that as you're teaching your clients and your patients you will find ways to implement low and no calorie sweeteners into healthy eating patterns as a way of reducing added sugar intake. So let's get started. I know I don't need to tell all of you. You live this. You see this every day. But we are all being challenged by those trends and those rising rates of obesity and diabetes. Many people are now referring to this as diabesity. So if you take a look at the rates of obesity in the United States. Now what we're looking at here are U.S. adults. And you look, over the last 20 years, we've seen about a 12% increase or so in the rates of obesity in U.S. adults. 42% of U.S. adults are living with obesity. When we do a deeper dive into what we call severe obesity, often defined as a BMI of 40 or greater, you can see that that affects about 10% of all adults in the United States. To put this into perspective, a BMI of 40 means that that individual is approximately 100 pounds above a healthy weight zone. And both of these trends are rising. It shouldn't surprise you that if obesity is rising, so too is diabetes. If you look at the number of people in the United States with pre-diabetes, It's almost 100 million. That means one in every three adults has prediabetes. Folks, this does not bode well for us as a country. 11% of these individuals go on every year to develop diabetes if nothing changes. Again, those are staggering numbers. Well, what about diabetes? We're now at about 37 million or about one in every 10 adults. To put this into perspective, I began speaking on diabetes in the 1990s. I used to quote a statistic of 10 to 12 million. So you can see that both of these numbers are on the rise. I remember becoming uh, going to school, becoming an NP. I've been in practice now for 31 years, and we never spoke about type 2 diabetes in youth and adults under the age of 20. Well, it's a different game today. You can see here that in 2017, there were 28,000 young adults in the United States who had been diagnosed with diabetes, type two that is. Now the majority are still type one, but if we continue on the trend that we are seeing in the adult population, and we kind of move that into the young adult population, we expect that by the year of 2060, there will be a 700% increase in the number of youth that are living with type two diabetes. COVID hasn't helped. You may have seen the statistic. There's been a 60% increase in new diagnoses of both type one and type two in the last three years of this pandemic. Well, obesity and diabetes are multifactorial. There are a number of reasons that people develop diabetes and obesity. One of the large, one of the big components related to both of these is certainly our diet and a big component of that is the amount of sugar that Americans are consuming, and that is in the average diet. You can see that the average adult in the United States is consuming about 250-ish calories from sugar and about 17 teaspoons of sugar a day. Well, the American Diabetes, excuse me, the Dietary Group for America Uh, recommends that that number be reduced to less than 10% of our daily calories. They also recommend that less than 12 teaspoons of sugar are ingested daily in our diet. Well, the American Heart took it even further. The American Heart Association recommends limiting sugars in our diet to under 6% of our calories. That means less than nine teaspoons a day and less than six teaspoons a day, uh, less than nine in men and less than six teaspoons a day in women. So in addition to giving us this recommendation, the American Heart Association Science Advisory also issued a statement to all of us about the impact of added sugars, that the body of evidence is so robust and it demonstrates that diets that are high in sugar not only contribute to diabetes and obesity, They also contribute to inflammation, coronary heart disease, dyslipidemia, and even hypertension. Of additional concerns, when people ingest large amounts of sugar in their diet, it displaces nutrient containing foods, foods like fruits and vegetables and protein. And these diets that are high in sugar are associated with an increase or excess in energy intake. So the American heart calls on all of us to work with our patients to limit the intake of added sugars so that we can help our patients to achieve as well as maintain a healthy body weight. So where are all of these sugars in our diets coming from? Number one is sugar sweetened beverages, and this includes coffee and tea. About 35% of the sugars in our diet come from these liquid beverages. You've all seen these franchises, these coffee houses, where some of these drinks that people are consuming have 20 and 30 teaspoons of sugar and have over a thousand calories in one drink. Now, certainly there are other places where sugars come from, but you can see those sugar sweetened beverages lead the charge. So the American Diabetes Association issued a consensus report on nutrition therapy targeted at our patients who have pre-diabetes and and diabetes. And here's what they said, sugar sweetened beverages and the consumption of those in the general population contributes to diabetes, to heart disease and kidney disease, contributes to what we used to call non-alcoholic liver disease. We now refer to this as MAFLD or metabolic liver disease and also contributes to tooth decay. But here's a statistic that for me is startling. When you take a patient who has prediabetes and they ingest one sugar-sweetened beverage a day, it increases their risk of progressing onto diabetes by 26%. Conversely, helping our patients to eliminate one of those can also make a huge impact on delaying the progression. Well, in 2023, the British Medical Journal issued what we call an umbrella review, where they looked at high dietary sugar consumption, and they looked at 73 different meta-analyses, over 83 health outcomes, over 8,000 unique articles, and they concluded that dietary sugar consumption is much more harmful than it is helpful. We all know that sugar consumption contributes a lot to the endocrine and the metabolic consequences, the diabetes and the obesity. But what a lot of people don't realize is that they also can contribute to the development of cancer, cardiovascular disease, and even neuropsychiatric conditions as well. So I talked with you a little bit about that MAFLD, that metabolic associated fatty liver disease, take a look at this pathway to the development of inflammation and even fibrosis in in the liver. And if you take a look, when patients ingest fructose, otherwise known as sugar, there are multiple ways that this fructose increases adipose tissue, which increases insulin resistance. You can also see that that fructose contributes to gut microbiome dysbiosis, and it increases oxidative stress leading to inflammation as well as fibrosis in the liver. By the way, metabolic liver disease is now the number one reason in the United States for people to need a liver transplant. So this is not a benign condition. Every year, the International Food and Information Council does a survey of Americans and what they look at is what are the drivers for the food that you're eating and they want to identify the habits of Americans. You can see from the 2022 survey that 73% of Americans say they are trying to avoid or limit sugars. And when asked what's the reason for that, the main reason was to avoid weight gain. And I think we hear this in our clinical sites every day. But what's also equally interesting is they also ask the people who are not trying to avoid sugars in their diet, well, why aren't you trying to avoid them? And their answer is they like the taste of the sweetness of their food. Therefore, one of the things that we can bring to the table are low and no calorie sweeteners and give these patients an option for substituting out the sugars in their diet for products that can help to reduce that sugar consumption and even calories. So continuing on with this survey, they also looked at what are the top reasons that people are using low and no calorie sweeteners. And the number one reason was, I want to try to limit or avoid sugar. Number two was they wanted to save calories. And about 34% actually believe that sugar is not good for them. Disappointing to me is 26% said my healthcare provider recommended that I avoid sugar. I believe that these are conversations that we need to have with our patients, not just for themselves, but patients who have who have children because we we know that there that there is a plethora of information out there about the impact of sugars in their diet. So one of the things that is confusing to a lot of patients, as well as to healthcare professionals, is that, that these products go by a lot of different names. You've heard them referred to as artificial sweeteners. You've heard them referred to as low calorie sweeteners. Today, I'm going to call them low and no calorie sweeteners but just recognize that they have a multitude of names and are often referred to by that multitude of names in the literature. So it's important to help people to tease out these names. So let's take a look at the variety of sweeteners that we have available. So when you're looking at a label and you're helping patients to interpret that label, when you see sucrose, when you see fructose, you need to know that that product is flavored with sugar. We have sweeteners that have been designated by the FDA as food additives. We'll talk about that in a moment. Sucralose, the active ingredient in Splenda is one of them. You've got aspartame and saccharin as well. The rage these days are some of these plant-based and fruit-based sweeteners, products like Steviol uh, and monk fruit. We'll talk a little bit about those in a second. And then there are other types of sweeteners The one I do want to call your attention to are what we call sugar alcohol and sugar alcohols. You've heard of xylitol and sorbitol over the years, but today we're also going to talk about a product called erythritol as well. So the good news is there are lots of different options for patients. So you remember a few minutes ago, I said to you one of the reasons that people don't want to eliminate. Sugar is they like the taste of it, and they like the sweetness of that in their food. Well, if you take a look at this sweetness intensity table, you can see that compared to table sugar, saccharin is 200 to 700 times sweeter than table sugar is. Products like Splenda, 600 times sweeter than table sugar, and Splenda Stevia, 200 to 400 times. We've got aspartame at 200 times. The moral of the story here is that even if someone says, I don't love the taste of saccharin or I'm not an aspartame fan, there are lots of other low, no calorie sweeteners that are available to them that are sweeter than table sugar and can give them that sweetness in their diet. So let's talk about the safety of low and no calorie sweeteners. And before I get into the safety, I think it's important for you to understand that the FDA regulates these products. They do regulate low and no calorie sweeteners. And based on their review, they're going to either be designated as a food additive or what we call generally regarded as safe. I'm gonna refer to that as GRASS. Let's talk about the differences. So for a product to be designated as a food additive, it's going to undergo a pre-market review and approval by the FDA before it can be used in foods. The FDA is going to look at short and long-term toxicity studies, its carcinogenic potential, and reproductive toxicity studies. There are six products, including sucralose, aspartame, xylitol, et cetera, that have been designated as a food additive. But not every low and no calorie sweetener is designated as a food additive. It's also possible for them to be designated as grass. And so what is this? It is, they do not have to undergo that pre-market approval, but what still has to happen is a panel of experts who are trained in this domain are going to all come together and look at the literature that is currently available and the studies that are available and to look at those studies to identify, is this product safe to use under the conditions of its intended use? And there are a number of different products that are designated as grass as well. So the take-home story here is whether they are a food additive or they are designated as a grass product, they are both FDA approved and must meet safety standards before they are allowed to be added in to products that we will all use. I also wanna set the stage by talking about some terms so that you can understand what does it mean when I say ADI or acceptable daily intake What does it mean when I say no observed adverse effect level? Well, it should be noted that the uh, acceptable daily intake is set by the joint FAO, World Health Organization Expert Committee on food additives, and then confirmed by the FDA. And so the uh, acceptable daily intake is the amount of a sweetener considered to be safe to consume every day over the course of a person's lifetime without appreciable health risks. The the no observed adverse effect level is the highest dietary level uh, of an additive at which no adverse effects are observed in animal studies. So how do we figure this out? So let's say if there is a product where the no observed adverse effect level is a thousand milligrams per kilo, you take that amount and you divide it by 100. And that is going to give you what we call the acceptable daily intake. If we use a product like sucralose or Splenda, for example, you can see that the no observed adverse effect level is 2,600 packets. Then, Then we divide that by 100 and we get an acceptable daily intake. That's approximately 26 packets. What is the estimated daily intake? Well, it's generally determined based on the 90th percentile of the population consuming this product in a food. But in any event, the estimated daily intake would be somewhere around eight packets. That is well below the acceptable daily intake and way below that no observed adverse effect level. So I think it's important for you to have an understanding of these terms. Every single day, we open up our laptops, we open up social media, and we see these headlines. Keep in mind that a lot of people are now getting their news straight from social media. And with these 24-hour news cycles, these news companies need to continue to put out information to get people to watch, et cetera. So what often happens is you'll see these headlines, headlines that are designed to draw people in, to look at the information or to watch what is about to come up or happen, but oftentimes these are very misleading. So what I wanna do is I wanna talk with you now in the next five to 10 minutes about the low no calorie safety misinformation that exists and give you an opportunity to take a look at some of the studies that really dispel this misinformation that is being circulated for, to us as well as our patients. How many of you remember the 1970s? I do, I was alive at that time. And at that point, I remember the whole discussion about saccharin being linked with bladder cancer in male rats. It caused saccharin in 1981 to be listed in the U.S. National Toxicology Report on Carcinogens. Many of you may remember this. Well, in the 1980 to around 2000, a multitude of studies were conducted where they could not identify any mechanistic way that this product could cause cancer in humans. They then went on to do epidemiologic studies and animal studies, which showed no evidence that any FDA approved artificial sweetener was associated with bladder cancer or any other cancer. Well, guess what? In 2000, saccharin was delisted from this list. What made the headlines was the cancer concern. What did not make the headlines was when saccharin was delisted. Let's take another look at another headline. The International Agency for Research on Cancer over the past year uh, published some information the headline read, Aspartame Hazard and Risk Assessment Results Released. And in this guideline, or, or in this paper, the international agency classified aspartame as possibly carcinogenic in humans. That is a group 2B, I'll show you what that means in just a second. And they, they came to this conclusion on the basis of limited evidence for cancer in humans. There was also limited evidence in experimental animals, limited limited evidence as to how aspartame could possibly cause cancer in humans. And as a result of a review of all of the scientific uh, literature, they designated it a group 2B. And so let's take a look at what group 2B looks like. So let's start out by taking a look at group 1, carcinogenic products we know that alcohol and UV radiation are carcinogenic to humans. Group 2A is probably carcinogenic. This includes things like red meat and the consumption of such. Where did aspartame get listed? In that group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans, and then group 3 is not classifiable. So why do I think that this is important to address? I think it puts it into perspective. I also will say to you that I have a number of patients who consume alcohol every single night, who go to the beach and sit in the sun, yet when the study came out on aspartame said, I need to stop doing or eating anything that contains aspartame. I hope what this does is it puts it into perspective and I think what we need is continued science We need to continue to study these products to ensure that what we are using and what we are doing are safe to all of us. And I think that that is ongoing. Well, what about low, no calorie sweeteners and the risk of diabetes? I remember this headline. I remember patients coming in to me and saying, well, I read that it tricks the pancreas into thinking that you're ingesting sugar and you produce more insulin and you get diabetes. Well, this is a meta-analysis of 29 randomized trials, and what they concluded was that the consumption of low-no-calorie sweetened beverages and foods did not increase blood glucose levels. And in fact, if you look at this slide over time, after the consumption of the low-no-calorie sweetened product, you can see that blood glucose continued to decline over a period of 210 minutes. All right, well, what about diabetes? Another meta-analysis of 10 prospective, that's good, we like prospective trials, but they were observational studies. We're gonna talk about this in just a second. But 10 prospective observational studies looked at the consumption of low, no calorie sweetened beverages, and they concluded that there was a 25% increased risk for the development of diabetes. However, when they controlled for adiposity and they adjusted for the degree of adiposity that people have, because remember the more intra-abdominal adiposity we have, the greater the risk for diabetes. We now understand that visceral adiposity located below the abdominus rectus muscle is an active endocrine organ and itself increases the risk for diabetes. So when they controlled for adiposity, that association was attenuated down to 8%. But here is where observational studies get really tricky because they don't control for what we call confounding variables. So here is the question. Is it possible that overweight or obese adults might actually consume more low, no calorie sweetened products and beverages when compared to people who are of normal weight. And the fact that they are overweight and obese increases the risk for diabetes. That's what we call a confounding variable. I don't know if any of you remember, but about a decade ago, there was a study that came out that showed water ingestion increases BMI. That's a confounding variable. Water consumption does not increase BMI. Maybe it's the fact that people with elevated BMIs are consuming more water as a result of a a diet plan or a weight loss or healthy eating plan. So I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these observational trials have confounding factors or variables that really affect the interpretation of the results. So I then turn to professional organizations What do they have to say about low, no calorie sweetened products and their impact on diabetes? The American Diabetes Association in their 2023 standards of care said non-nutritive sweeteners do not appear to have a significant effect on glycemic management and that they can reduce overall calorie and carbohydrate ingestion intake as long as people don't compensate and substitute out other calories from, uh, or get additional calories from other food sources. So if people do switch to these non-nutritive sweeteners or low, no calorie sweeteners, they can certainly have an impact on weight reduction. Well, what about cardiac disease? I'm going to draw your attention to this middle bullet. The American Heart Association science advisory stated that sugar sweetened beverages have been associated and known to increase the risk for coronary heart disease. The American Heart also said that there were two large prospective studies where people were followed for decades and they found that the consumption of low, no calorie sweetened beverages was not associated with an increased risk of coronary heart disease or any of its related biomarkers. In fact, the American Heart said, we need to find healthy substitutes for sugar sweetened beverages. So let's take a look at the next headline. And the next headline was elevated levels of erythritol and several related artificial sweeteners were associated with the risk for cardiovascular events. This reference is at the back of your handout. I don't have time to deep dive into a lot of this study, but there were a lot of problems with this study. The first part, that you need to know is that in the initial study, the investigators and authors looked for compounds in the blood whose levels were linked to future cardiac event. And they tracked adverse cardiovascular events over three years. They concluded that elevated levels of erythritol were associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular events. It's important for you to note that erythritol levels are found naturally or erythritol is found naturally in fruits and vegetables. They then went on to do an in vitro study in humans looking at platelets. They did an animal study. And they measured erythritol levels in eight volunteers after giving them a beverage that contained three times the amount of erythritol than than is found in any erythritol beverage on on the current market. So this is what the headline says. What's the reality when we take and we break down this study eight patients does not make a study. There was no intervention for diet and physical activity. We also know that erythritol has been approved not just in the US, but in 60 countries around the world. And we also produce our own erythritol when our body is under oxidative stress. So this headline was misleading and the study was not a good evidence-based study. Well, what about low, no calorie sweeteners and their effect on appetite? I've heard this from my patients for years. Well, if I use these products, doesn't it increase my appetite? And 12 studies pulled together show that low and no calorie sweetened products do not increase anyone's appetite. One last comment on the gut microbiome. This is a subject of a lot of research, particularly in the world of obesity, and the current literature examining the effects of low, no calorie uh, sweetened products and the human gut microbiome are limited. There are a few studies out there that look at, uh, that have shown changes from low, no calorie sweeteners in the gut microbiome. Those studies were five to 14 days. American Heart issued a statement saying there's little evidence on this topic that is available from human studies. And the question becomes, If changes from when you switch from sugar-sweetened beverages to low, no-calorie sweetened beverages, uh, is that that a positive change in the gut microbiome or is it a negative change? We need additional studies to to further conclude this. So now let's move on to the efficacy of low, no-calorie sweetened products. It's a complex issue. It's not as easy and as, as simple as it may seem. Now, theoretically, if we replace one bottle of sugar sweetened beverage a day, that's about 200 calories. We do that every day for 30 days of a month. We do that every day of every month for a year. We could theoretically eliminate 72,000 calories if every pound is 3,500 calories we could theoretically reduce our weight by 20 pounds in a year. I wish it were that simple. I think we all know it's not that simple, but if we can get people to make small changes without substituting out other calories in their food, certainly this is one way to begin to help our patients to reduce their calories. So I've already referred to observational evidence and the pitfalls that come from these studies. They're plagued by those confounding factors and what we often call reverse causation bias. I remember when I was in my doctoral program and we were doing stats and we were learning about all of this, I thought, oh my goodness, my brain is going to, you know, my brain is is not processing this. But, but think about it this way. People who are heavier and have a tendency to gain weight are often the ones that will choose low, no calorie sweetened products. So a systematic review of 14 prospective cohort studies evaluating the relationship of low, no calorie sweetened beverages and the risk of obesity, metabolic syndrome and diabetes found positive associations. However, when they controlled and adjusted for BMI, those associations became non-significant. This is what we call that reverse those confounding factors and reverse causation bias. So to reduce the possibility of reverse causation, some prospective studies are now using what we call the change of change analysis. And this is a strategy that looks at the association between the changes in the intake of low, no calorie, sweetened beverages and changes in body weight. And what was seen is that the weight gain in women who reported increasing their low, no-calorie sweetened soft soft drink intake. So weight gain was significantly lower than women who reported decreasing their low, no-calorie sweetened soft drink after adjustments were made for other dietary factors. Continuing on. So what does the American heart say? Reverse causality and adiposity cannot be ruled out as driving factors in these observations. So what do we need to do? We need to turn to more vigorous science. We need to turn to double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trials, so that we can really look at the evidence and minimize those confounding factors. This was a really interesting study. It was an 18-month trial. It involved children, five to 12 years of age, and they randomized them half went to g- got a sugar sweetened beverage every day and the other got an artificially sweetened beverage or sugar free and they followed them over 18 months and you can see that the group that ingested sugar free product over the course of those 18 months did gained less weight you can see that there was about a 2.2 pound weight difference between the sugared group and the sugar-free group. A meta-analysis of prospective randomized trials on low, no-calorie sweetened products and body weight, 15 randomized trials followed people for four to 52 weeks. And in these randomized control trials, low, no-calorie sweeteners were associated with a moderate, a modest, excuse me, but significantly reduced all the outcomes that were examined. What does that mean? people who consumed the low, no-calorie sweetened products lost more weight, had a better reduction in their BMI, had a reduction in their fat mass, and also had a reduction in their waist circumference. Another study looking at body weight, a prospective randomized, 20 randomized trials involving over 2,000 patients 12 weeks or longer, low, no-calorie sweetened products led to a weight loss of 2.8 pounds when compared to those who are not using the product. And by the way, you saw the p-value, highly statistically significant. Well, what about people who say to me, I hate drinking water. I don't like it. I I don't drink much water. What about substituting out low, no calorie sweetened, sweetened beverages versus water? No difference in weight gain or weight loss. When low, no calorie sweetened beverages were substituted out versus sucrose. You can see that there was a lower weight and BMI, so that's sugar, by the way, for patients who consumed the low, no calorie beverages. Continuing on with this sub analysis for people who are overweight or obese who consumed the low, no calorie products, there was a significant weight loss and BMI loss. It wasn't sig- significant in people who were of a normal weight. And the good news is that in unrestricted dietary settings, meaning eat what you want, eat what's going to work for you, substituting out and in, in using low, no-calorie sweetened beverages and products was associated with BMI loss. I mentioned Maffled, uh, the metabolic liver disease, MAFLD. I wanna show you just a couple of really interesting studies, I think, Looking at male and female subjects, all who were overweight or obese, they had BMIs of 25 or greater, and they were consuming two or more sugar-sweetened beverages a day. So 222 ounces of something like a cola, for instance. And they were randomized to either stay with your usual product or replace your sugar-sweetened beverage with artificially sweetened beverages. They followed them out over 12 weeks, And what they found was the people that consumed the low no calorie sweetened beverages had a a significant decrease in their liver fat content. They didn't lose weight, but the fat in their liver was significantly reduced. Another study, this is an interesting one. They randomized people to one of four different drinks, sugar sweetened drink, uh, semi skim milk, a low no calorie diet soda and water. And they measured intrahepatic fat using an MRI. And what they found was that there was a decrease in hepatic fat in all of the non sugar drinks. Again, we see the same thing here in a couple of additional studies where people who use regular soda versus diet soda and water will see an increase in liver fat. So, one of the things I always talk to my patients about who have fatty liver, also now known as mathldy, is the importance of getting rid rid of those sugar-sweetened beverages that are in their diet. So the American Heart Science Advisory Summary stated that short-term evidence suggests that replacing sugar-sweetened beverages with low, no-calorie sweetened beverages can help in the management of overweight and obesity, particularly among high-risk overweight or obese individuals who have harmful levels of visceral or ectopic fat. Visceral adiposity is below the abdominis rectus muscle, ectopic fat is on the hips and on the thighs. You may have heard the statement that gut fat is worse than butt fat and and that is because visceral adiposity confers a much higher risk for the development of diabetes than does fat that is located on the thigh or the butt. They also say more long-term evidence is needed. Well, what about the ADA? ADA says that that use of non-nutritive sweeteners as a replacement for sugar-sweetened products can reduce calories and carb intake as long as there's not a compensatory increase in energy intake from other sources. And for people who don't like to drink water, ADA says these products are a viable alternative to water. So let's pull this all together in the next five or six minutes and let's look at the totality of evidence. Continuing on with both the American Heart and the ADA and their position on non-nutritive sweeteners, when they're used judiciously, they can facilitate reduction in sugar intake, therefore reducing total energy, contributing to weight loss and weight maintenance and promoting beneficial effects on metabolic parameters. But these benefits are not going to be realized if people start to compensate by taking in calories from other sources. The ADA consensus report on on nutrition therapy for adults with prediabetes and diabetes state the following. We want to minimize added sugars and refined grains. And you can see here, they call on health providers to focus on the key factors that are common among the individuals who have diabetes or pre-diabetes. So minimizing sugars can be very beneficial. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the use of non-nutritive sweeteners state the following, that they work as part of a strategy for diet and health concerns and help to limit carbs and energy intake, as well as help to regulate weight and blood glucose and are favorable for use in patients with both types of diabetes. So in totality, the evidence in one statement that low, no calorie sweetened products are a safe tool that can be used as part of a comprehensive approach to weight loss and weight maintenance, but should not be thought of as the complete answer or the complete approach in and of itself. It is part of a healthy life or healthy eating pattern. So let's talk now in our last few minutes about implementing low, no calorie sweeteners into a healthy eating pattern. The ADA says, we want people to maintain the pleasure of eating. So much of what we do revolves around food. It's part of our family. It's part of our culture. We don't want to take away the pleasure of eating. However, we should continue to provide positive messages regarding food choice while limiting food choices only when are indicated by scientific evidence. That people with diabetes should be given practical tools. And I would even say people with pre-diabetes and those who are overweight or obese as well should be given practical tools for day-to-day meal planning. Remember that study that showed that one of the reasons people want to eat sugar-sweetened beverages is because of their taste. And so when people were given an option between taste and price and uh, healthfulness of foods, the top purchase driver, even in a time where, where cost is so high right now for food, taste is the main driver. So what can we do? Well, the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has issued dietary approaches to adults with overweight or obesity. And my patients ask me all the time, what, what diet should I follow? And I give them a list like this and I say, follow whichever one you feel is best for you. And But the good news is, whether they're using a DASH diet, a moderate protein diet, my plate Ornish American Heart, low and no calorie sweeteners can be part of any approach. Here is an example of the different products that are available, the sucralose, the stevia, the aspartame, the monk fruit, what you're also seeing are the various forms that it is available as well. It's not just available in packets, it's available in pouches and jars, liquids, and even in blends. So I love this slide because it's concrete examples of how we can help patients to make a substitution. So they're drinking A sugar-sweetened beverage, 48 grams of sugar, 190 calories. Swapping out using a product, for instance, like Splenda Zero, will give them zero calories, zero added grams of sugar. Well, what about eating something like oatmeal, 18 grams of sugar, 320 calories? How about flavoring that with the monk fruit? They're still going to get 200 calories, but no added sugar. And last, a brownie, for instance, 270 calories, 23 grams of added sugar, but cooking those brownies and using Splenda, 120 calories, still getting some calories, but no grams of sugar. The, uh, so, As we take a look at the nutrition care process for medical nutrition therapy, it's important that we assess where our patients are at, do a good history, perform a good physical exam, And if we are not ourselves capable of providing these individuals with healthy meal plans and eating, they should be referred to people who can help them. I find the hard part is oftentimes their insurance will not cover nutrition therapy, depending upon whether they have diabetes or not. But a lot of this can be done in primary care. We do a lot of this counseling. We also wanna diagnose their comorbidities try to fine tune their eating patterns to their comorbidities. This will allow us to address the why people eat the way they do, why do they follow the patterns that they do. We can then intervene, make recommendations for them, and help them to achieve a healthy lifestyle, a healthy weight, hopefully, and also to be as healthy as they can possibly be. I hope what I have done with you over the course of the last 45 minutes, just gonna try to get this to um, advance, is I hope what I've done for you is, is shown you that excessive added sugar consumption significantly increases the risk for many chronic conditions, not just obesity and diabetes. That low, no calorie sweeteners are sugar alternatives that can contain little or no carbs depending upon the product that they use and come in a variety of forms. It's important that we look at the totality of the evidence and not just those headlines. Those headlines are often misleading. I wanted to walk you through those studies so that you know how to respond as you're talking with your patients. And last but not least, they can easily be implemented into a variety of different healthy eating patterns to help individuals to reduce their sugar intake. So I want to thank our sponsor today, And I want to open this up now in our last 10 or so minutes to any questions that you may have for me. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you so much, Wendy. That was really interesting. Um, Let's start with the few questions we have here from the audience. Um, The first question we have, is there a relationship between the time or interval of consumption of these low, no-calorie sweeteners and weight?
1: So that's a great question. And so I wanna make sure I'm understanding what you're asking me. So I'm gonna give you what I think is what you're looking for. But if I'm not answering your question, please come back at me. So you saw from those clinical trials that many of those trials went on for weeks, if not up to a year. So what I tell people is the longer we make these changes and incorporate these changes into a consistent lifestyle and eating pattern, the better hope we have at either losing weight and or maintaining a healthy weight zone. So you saw that slide where each of these sugar sweetened beverages are often somewhere around 200 calories. If we can get people to swap some of those out without making other changes in terms of adding in other calories, we can begin to see weight reduction as soon as a couple of weeks after those changes are made.
0: So our next question is, um, do low, no-calorie sweeteners affect, adversely affect kidney function so that people must make a choice between the type of sweetener they choose?
1: Thank you for that question. I have not seen any uh, studies out there that have shown that people with kidney disease, and by the way, I have a lot of them, that they have to restrict any one of these particular products. I tell them that they can use low, no calorie sweeteners, and they can consume the product that they feel comfortable and that they like. Remembering that the average or estimated daily intake is way, way below the approved daily intake that um, the FDA has approved. So I don't, I don't tell my patients to use any one particular product. What I say is uh, use the product that you feel you like the taste of, but you also want to look at the calories because as I showed you, some of these products do have calories in them.
0: Our next question is, um, what is the research on migraine and artificial sweeteners or diarrhea?
1: Thank you for asking that. I do a lot of speaking on migraine and I've been treating patients for years with migraine. And I do have patients who tell me that when they ingest certain artificial sweeteners and it varies person to person, that it can trigger a migraine for them. So again, just like I said just a minute ago, one of the things I say to them is they're not all considered equal. Maybe try one of the plant-based products or the fruit-based products. You know, People often refer to these as artificial sweeteners, but many of these products come from plants and from fruits as well. So I tell them not to rule it out, but to more look at the different products that are out there and see if they can use some of them and not have her, it trigger a migraine. In terms of diarrhea, I don't hear that very often. Oftentimes I hear people say, you know, I drink my coffee and I flavor it with X, Y, and Z. And every time I drink my coffee, I get diarrhea, but caffeine is a bowel stimulant. So I have not heard that as a trigger of diarrhea, but again, everyone is so different. so. I believe people, if they say I use this product and I got diarrhea from it, I'll just say, try a different product. Remember there are 10, 15 of these different products that are now available on the market.
0: I have a question here about low and no calorie sweeteners and their effect on appetite. For instance, um, aspartame making them hungry.
1: Yes, so we do not have evidence to support that these low, no-calorie sweeteners increase appetite. And as I went through the program, that slide and that reference will be available for you uh, after this program is over, but there's just no evidence to support that it does increase appetite.
0: Are you seeing any trends um, with low and no-calorie sweeteners? Are some being used less versus some being used more?
1: yes i am seeing some trends you know and i'm seeing these trends in my practice as well in that people come in and they'll say i want plant-based products i want more natural products i don't want your pharmaceutical products and uh and so what we're seeing are more and more people are turning to the plant and fruit based products i.e the monk fruit or the Stevia-based pro, uh, products. Now, I'll be quite honest with you. I'm not a Stevia fan. I don't love how it tastes, but I, I like some of the others, like Superlow's. Everyone has their own taste. And so I think the rage right now is the more natural uh, products that people are often using.
0: Can you recommend some sources I can go to to learn more about low, no-calorie sweeteners that aren't from a brand name?
1: absolutely the first place i would encourage all of you to go because it is the fda that regulates these products that are being added into the diet is to visit visit the fda and you can google fda low no calorie sweeteners and get some information there I did write down a couple of uh, options, a couple of other locations if you are interested. There is one called International Sweetener Association, so it's not just a U.S.-based organization, but it really is international-based, so International Sweetener Association. And then the other one is Calorie Control Council. Calorie Control Council so that you can get information that does not necessarily come from a maker of a particular product.
0: Do you know of any evidence relating bladder problems with um, low, no calorie sweeteners?
1: So I do not know of uh, evidence regarding low, no calorie sweeteners and bladder cancer. Although I do have some patients who have interstitial cystitis And I do know that the urologists are recommending that they are very careful with sugar, but also uh, artificial sweetened or low-no calorie sweeteners as well, because for some people, these products can trigger some discomfort uh, from their interstitial cystitis. I have not taken the time honestly to read up on, because the, the list is so long for my patients with interstitial cystitis, but I have heard urologists say, hey, I would recommend you avoid these products as best as possible. But I am not aware of any link between these products. And again, you saw the delisting of the saccharin-based product in uh, 2000 off of the carcinogenic um, listing.
0: Does aspartame cause side effects of stomach nausea, memory loss, body pain and joints or fibromyalgia effects and, and do any others?
1: I have not, thank you for asking that Debbie. I have not seen anything and I actually do a lot of work on fibromyalgia on any link between these low, no calorie sweeteners and worsening of fibromyalgia. Now, one of the things I do talk to my patients about with fibromyalgia is a low inflammation diet. I encourage them to stick with diets that are high in in, uh, fish, high in plants and vegetables, low in sugar. So uh, because we do know that for people with fibromyalgia, that high inflammatory diet can certainly worsen it. The hard part about fibromyalgia is, A, we don't have conclusive evidence as to what causes it. We do know that there are certainly sleep abnormalities that occur, uh, but we have no real concrete understanding of what is the reason people develop fibromyalgia. But I have not seen a link between aspartame and a trigger of fibromyalgia symptoms, at least in you know a well-controlled trial. Now, I want to preface this, Julie, by saying patients are not trials. My patients are not a clinical trial. And if someone says to me, if I use this product or if I do this, I don't feel good when I use it, then I say to them, then don't use it. Uh, and, And I encourage people to, even if they're not celiac positive, if they have fibromyalgia, I'll say, try eliminating gluten from your diet. For some people, that can be very helpful as well. So I think what we have to do is take this evidence but also remember that our patients are an N of one and that they are not a study and that we have to work with them to find what is best for them. I think we have about one minute left or so. I don't wanna take away from anyone's time. So is there one last question that I could answer?
0: Sure, let's ask this one. Um, Can the number of times we eat in a day influence our blood glucose levels and lead to weight gain or loss?
1: I think that the answer is unequivocally yes. The amount of times we eat in a day can affect our blood sugar and can lead to weight gain. As I tell my patients, it's calories in, it's expenditure out. So if we're eating six times a day, and every time we're eating, it's three and 400 calories, but we're only burning off 1200 in the back end, those calories are going to go somewhere. Now, one of the things I often encourage my patients to do is to eat small amounts every two to three hours, but making sure that when they're doing that, it's high in protein, low in carbs, low in sugar, so that they're getting healthy food and not non-nutritive type of products, and then maintain a good caloric intake as well. You know, as I think about this, if you eat a bagel and you've put cream cheese on it, you're gonna get 600 calories. I like to ride my bike, I like to run, Do you know how long I have to ride that bike for to burn off those calories from the bagel with cream cheese? So it's all about healthy modification, right? So eating in moderation is the word I'm looking for and making those healthy decisions. It's truly been my pleasure to be with you today. I want to thank you all so much for taking the time out of your schedule. Enjoy the rest of your day.